good to be with you all on this Trinity Sunday. Before we begin, I invite you to take a look at the front of your bulletin, this very famous icon of the Holy Trinity, written by a Russian painter, Andrei Rublev, called The Hospitality of Abraham. You might wonder what Abraham has to do with this, but if you think back to Genesis 18, Abraham is standing outside his tent when three angels visit him. Uh, this is when they announce that Sarah will have a child, and Sarah laughs at the thought of it because she is getting on in years. And Rublev has reinterpreted that appearance to Abraham as an appearance of the Holy Trinity. So you can see in the background here behind the left-hand angel, which is interpreted to be God the Father, there's a house there that's Abraham's house and might also be interpreted as the Father's house, which has many rooms. In the center there is Jesus Christ, and behind him, uh, the Oak of Mamre, um, where Abraham had settled. That might also be reinterpreted as the Tree of Life, or also as a prefiguration of the cross, the tree on which Christ was crucified. There on the right-hand side is the Spirit, uh, the green cloak symbolizing new life. And behind the Spirit, it's very difficult to see in this rendering, but there's a mountain there, um, which... Some Christian traditions, the, mount, the ascending the mountain of God is thought to be the spiritual life growing up to heaven and so on. In the midst there, there's a cup. We uh, might think of that as uh, prefiguring the Lord's Supper. If this was a little more clear, you would see that the wine in the cup is actually the shape of an animal's head. Uh, when Abraham invited his three guests in in the Genesis account, he asked Sarah to go and kill the fatted calf um, to welcome those guests. Some interpreters even see the father on the left pushing the cup toward the son and Jesus accepting the cup he must drink from the father for the sake of salvation. Uh, so there's so much rich imagery in this icon. I wanted to point this out to you on this Trinity Sunday uh, in which we are thinking about all the ways that our contemplation and adoration can be directed towards the worship of the Trinity as we gather today. So with that, keep your bulletins handy. I'll refer to them again during the sermon. But now as we turn our attention to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us bow for a word of prayer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. For we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson from the lectionary for Trinity Sunday comes from Psalm 8. I invite you now to listen for God's Word to you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals, that you care for them. 
Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. This comes from Jesus' final discourse to his disciples on the night of his arrest. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every year before Trinity Sunday, when I sit down to write a sermon, I ask myself the challenging question, what can I say about the Trinity that's practical? What's the takeaway that people can apply to their lives? What's the action item for the week that I can present about the doctrine of God, the three-in-one. Maybe something can be said about how God exists in relationship, and since we're made in the image of God, that means we're made for relationships, so we should invest in our relationships. That's pretty practical, wouldn't you say? Or maybe something can be said about how understanding that the will of the Trinity, the will of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is always united and seamless, which helps us avoid bad theologies that make God seem distant and far away and scary, while Jesus is the nice, caring, loving one. So maybe that would help us connect with the fullness of God a little better. Okay, that's another option. But until this year, I had never really stopped to consider the assumptions wrapped up in the question I would ask myself about how to make the Trinity practical. After all, why does the Trinity have to be practical? Is Trinity Sunday only worth celebrating if we can take something away for ourselves? And what does the assumption I'd been making about Trinity Sunday sermons say about our collective understanding of worship? If you're at all involved in church circles or any committee work in the church, then you'll know that there is an enormous emphasis these days on making sure that your worship is relevant, right? Worship needs to be relevant. And by this, we mean that worship can easily connect with each one of us. Church, then, is meaningful and worthwhile. It's relevant 
insofar as it speaks to my life, gets me in the right frame of mind, or gives me something to work on. But I worry that this sort of attitude about worship is born more from our culture's obsession with productivity and consumerism than it is born out of good theology. After all, we are always looking to optimize, right? We're always looking for the most bang for our buck, the most efficient use of our time, the best products with the best reviews. And these days, the quality of a church can be reduced to an out-of-five-star Google review, which will tell you how relevant a certain church is. This mindset of productivity and consumerism can easily over-inform our understanding of the meaning of worship and why it is we gather on Sunday morning. Most of us, I'm sure, want worship to serve a certain function in our lives, right? To reduce our stress, maybe, or make us feel good. To give the cerebral among us some new ideas to chew on. To give the artistic among us some new inspiration. To give the doers among us some new endeavor to pursue. But the danger is that worship can easily become, first of all, about me and my felt needs. And second of all, about God. Worship can easily become an exercise in individual fulfillment. A couple years ago, I was shopping at a shop in Vail, Colorado, and I ran across a shirt that said, I would rather be skiing and thinking about God than sitting in church thinking about skiing. Thankfully, the, church was on, the shirt was on a, the clearance rack. But it does reflect the zeitgeist of our culture, the spirit of our times, doesn't it? We want to spend every waking moment being productive or making the most out of life. And if church helps us maximize one of those priorities, great. But if not, then what's the point? Well, the point of worship, obviously, is God. And we gather because here we are for some reason with the breath of life in our lungs today, a borrowed gift from the living God. Here we are able to appreciate the beauty of music and architecture, the beauty of the natural world, because it was all called into being by our beautiful creator. Here we are able to love our spouse and our children and our neighbors even our difficult neighbors, because we're made in the image of the God of love. We are here because God is worthy of praise, and that's the only reason we should need to gather for worship. One of my theology professors in college provocatively began one of our classes by saying, worship is pointless. I was so aghast at such a statement. How could he say worship is pointless? Many of us raised our hands to object, and our professor patiently listened to us argue with him. I leave worship inspired to do something. I leave worship having learned new things about the Bible. I leave worship feeling refueled and ready to take on the week. And finally, having heard enough from us, our professor pointed out how none of us had said anything about God. We had only talked about ourselves. If worship isn't about you, he said, then it's pointless. 
Perhaps that's how it should be. Perhaps that's how God wants it. You see, sometimes we put ourselves at the center of worship. The text of that third hymn may have perfectly reinforced the scriptures and the sermon, but if the tune isn't familiar, it didn't give me the warm fuzzies, why did we bother with it? I already attended multiple committee meetings this week, and we got a lot done, so I'm going to skip worship till next week. I can worship God while I'm surfing or hiking, so why should I go to church when I can already worship through my hobbies? Now, it's not that worship should be meaningless or that worship should be irrelevant. Of course, we're right to want worship to be significant. Of course, we're right to want worship to bear fruit in our lives. There's a reason the Catholic Church finally abandoned saying the Mass only in Latin in 1963. There's a reason that we update our hymnals and our liturgy books every few decades. Worship should speak to us. And we should speak meaningfully in worship. But the key point here is that worship is not first of all about us. It's about God. And we gather for worship not first of all so that we can get something out of it. We gather for worship simply because God is worthy of praise. We gather because God is worth it. Because God deserves it. This doesn't mean that worship doesn't have a positive impact on us, though. In fact, as worship becomes ingrained in us, it takes on layer after layer after layer of new meaning. Worship is indeed deeply edifying to us. But our edification is a gracious byproduct of worship. Because God is gracious, God meets us in our worship and God self-reveals to us. Our encounters with God in worship are indeed meaningful and restorative, and yes, even relevant. But that's not first of all why we're here. That's because God is generous. We are here because God is worthy of praise. So if worship isn't about us, if worship isn't first of all a product for our consumption, a tool by which we can achieve personal gain, then what is it that we're doing in worship? Why do we go through all these movements of the liturgy? Why do we sing and pray and listen and respond? Well, in a nutshell, what we're doing in worship is encountering the triune God. And our liturgy, with its various movements, facilitates that encounter. So open up your bulletin for a second, and let's walk through some of these movements and consider the ways that the order of service facilitates our encounter with the living God. In the call to worship, we remember that we are not here by accident. We are here at the summons of the God who gathers a people into Jesus Christ. God is the one doing the calling in the call to worship. And as we invoke God's presence with a hymn of praise, we begin to recognize that our sin separates us from God. It's what happens to Isaiah in that throne room vision when he sees the image of the Lord high and lofty seated in the temple. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. As we draw near to God, we recognize our sinfulness. And so the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon 
remind us that in Christ we are forgiven and healed. And by the power of the Spirit, we are new creations. And with these assurances, we are ready to hear God's word. The scriptures are read, and the children's message, the anthem, and the the sermon articulate the will of God for the church in accordance with the scriptures. Then the affirmation of faith tests and measures the sermon against the historic faith of the church, reminding us that we're rooted in thousands of years of confession and faith, even as we confess the faith anew in a constantly changing world. And finally, we respond to our hearing of God's word with renewed commitment to discipleship. As we prepare to depart from our encounter with God in worship, we commit ourselves to faithful living through the giving of ourselves and our gifts in the offering, by partaking of the sacrament, by praying for the world, and by receiving the commissioning of the final hymn, charge, and blessing. And then we're sent out into the world in the name of the triune God to love and serve the Lord in all we do. And in all of these liturgical movements, worship is more than just a cognitive exercise. It involves many senses. As we walk into church, our eyes are drawn upward by the high ceilings, drawn towards heaven. We see the cross, the Bible, the table. We hear the organ, harmonies, and melodies, the word proclaimed. We taste God's grace in the Lord's Supper. Worship involves our whole person, engaging us to love and serve God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength like dripping water that gradually erodes texture into rock. The repetition of worship week after week shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ simply because we participate in this encounter with God. It happens slowly but resolutely over time. Now this is where worship is counter-cultural because our culture conditions us to prefer the new, right? Novelty is the name of the game as we await the latest iPhone release or the latest fashion trend. But worship's power lies in its enduring routine and in its repetitive regularity. Friends, the great truth about worship is that it is about God. And we worship simply because we love God. And yet, even as we make our worship about God, we find ourselves edified and shaped into the people God has called us to be, because as human beings, we become what we love. We become what we love. And if we love God, we become like Jesus Christ. Years ago, I would often visit a woman whose health was gradually declining over months and months. Thankfully, she wasn't suffering, but every time I saw her, she would always say, I'm ready to go. She didn't have much strength left, but whenever I would come to her house, she would want to run through this little liturgy that she had next to her bedside table. It had been laminated long ago and had those fraying edges of a laminated paper that indicated it had been used a lot. The liturgy featured generic prayers called for a reading of the daily lectionary scriptures, included the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and that sort of thing. And other than the scriptures, it was exactly the same every time. 
As she grew weaker, she became unable to speak the words of the liturgy with me, but I would still sit next to her and read through her prayers. And I'll always remember her lips silently moving along with me as I spoke. It seems she knew everything by heart, so thoroughly that even as her other faculties failed, she still had the words of her prayers on the tip of her tongue. This was a person who had been shaped by the liturgy and by worship so thoroughly that her love for God was evident to the very end. I have no doubt that her final breath was a prayer. I have no doubt that she was ready for eternity. And friends, this is why worship deserves special priority in our lives. It's a weekly encounter with the living God, a chance to participate in our communal encounter with our God, a chance to set aside our obsession with productivity and self-actualization and give our whole self into the hands of our God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And as the liturgy sweeps us up in the drama of salvation, we encounter none other than the triune God. As we express our love for God and worship, we become more like the people God has already made us to be in Jesus Christ. We prepare for eternity. So you see how we think about worship matters a great deal. If we put ourselves in the center of worship, then we wind up back in the marketplace of everyday life. But if we put God at the center of worship, we give ourselves back to our creator, then God molds us anew as a potter shapes clay. For God is gracious to meet us, to speak to us, and to send us forth. So then, is the Trinity practical after all? Is there a takeaway from this sermon or an action item for the week? Well, the most important thing is that the Trinity is worshipped, contemplated, and adored. Worship is an end in and of itself. Everything practical that follows from it is a bonus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.